Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Victoria Dorothy. He is the author of The Bone Church, Welcome to the Hotel Yalta and Cold. She writes fiction, drama and essays that revolve around lovers, killers, curses and destinies. Her work has been published or profiled in the New York Times, USA Today, the International Herald Tribune, and elsewhere. Earlier in her career, while living in Prague, she co-founded Black Box Theatre, translating, producing, and acting in several Czech plays. Her blog, Cold Features, her short essays on faith, love, uh, family, love, and writing. WordPress, the blogging platform that hosts some 70 million blogs worldwide, has singled out Cold as one of the top 50 recommended blogs by writers or about writing. So, uh, Victoria, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. By, by the way, I've been watching your vlogs and uh, that's one of the main reasons why I invited you and I guess that my uh, my audience would, will be a bit amazed by the fact that I I, uh, I invited an artist because that's very, <laughs> unu that's very unusu unusual on not my a philosopher. <laughs> uh, not a philosopher, not a scientist, but I mean now you will get to know that I'm also interested in these types of subjects. <laughs> exactly. Well, I come from a family of scientists and writers, you know, way back when. So I think I think writers kind of are philosophers and scientists. You know, we're we're interested in all sorts of these things and how they work and how they uh, how they play. Um, you know, when it when it comes to our our, our very natures. Mm -hmm. right. That's and why I, mean, I love. That's why I love watching your series because I think that it actually enriches me as a writer. I think it helps me understand people, the way people really work, the way people really think, the way um, you know. It's it's the sort of intellectual play that uh, that we that you and I were talking about. That's so important for developing a sort of rich idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting because I guess that uh, when when we're talking about other people particularly and even many times about our own selves i mean there are things we understand there's a lot of things that we don't understand even about ourselves so basically i guess that even as writers or scientists particularly psychologists i mean we are all the time trying to uncovering things that are somewhat buried deep down in our psyches or in our mm -hmm. minds. And uh, I mean, it's very tricky. And I guess that even for you sometimes to uh, try and write about uh, characters that are so different uh, from you, mm -hmm. and I guess that sometimes it's hard, right? To even to think about people that don't behave and don't think as we do, right? I I find it exciting. <laughs> I I love to um, write about people who who aren't like me. I mean, even people who I would in my personal life have a really negative reaction to. Um, I actually wrote one character a few years ago that I think I would actively despise. <laughs> as a person, you know, um, because, uh, you know, he, 
he just exemplified everything I, I don't like in a person. He was this um, sort of Soviet apparatchik who just did did everything he could try to do to get ahead within the system and also uh, really hurt people mm -hmm. um, while he did that. I mean, really caused people to be killed. And, um, and I, I developed a, a real empathy for him. I didn't like him better. You know, I, that doesn't mean I want to invite him into my life, but it was very exciting writing that character um, and writing his sort of inner workings. He ended up killing himself um, <laughs> because he would have otherwise been murdered by, uh, by um, well, by a Soviet, another, another Soviet agent who he uh, happened to um, get get in his crosshairs and he was a smarter operator the other agent was just a smarter operator but um i i i love that you know i think that that is something that uh i think that's one of the things that that makes me right is that i i'm i'm interested in in what people are doing and why they're doing those things and and how it is that they they come to their worldview with that that interesting combination of innate personality traits and experience that that's so rich and fun and and you know that has us glued to game of thrones for instance on the television or or in you know engrossed in tolkien mm -hmm. um yeah, it, it, 500 pages of you know lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring yeah. Yeah, and I I mean I was trying to leave Game of Thrones for later in the interview but <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe let's talk about it right away because I I mean uh, there, there's a very interesting side of it particularly about the television series mm -hmm. because in this last particularly in this last season I mean even before that there were already some iffy things going around there, but mm -hmm. particularly in this last season, I guess that uh, it's interesting to talk about how people reacted to the fact that certain things happened in a rush and weren't really yeah. that well explained where they came from. And also the fact that certain characters uh, didn't have fulfilling endings and didn't complete their arcs in a sense mm -hmm. like like for example the nearies uh, jamie I, I mean it was john very... Tyrion, <laughs> all of them just sort of fell flat yeah for me for me yeah yeah and yeah. And, th and that's interesting because there are two elements to it the first element is what people uh, get right about it because I, I I mean is it true that things should have been a different way is it true that the producers and the writers could have done a better job of it but that, that's one thing the, the other thing is what people get wrong about it because this is basically about expectations right and since yeah. uh, since the expectations of uh, not all fans, of course, but let's say a significant number of them uh, didn't get fulfilled. Then that's why people get got really frustrated with it. But I, I mean, the, there yeah. are the two sides that we have to take into account, right? Definitely. And plus, I mean, I, I have no idea what it must be like to make a television series. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that just, you know, 
with plays, because I do have some experience with plays, there are so many elements that are sometimes competing with one another um, that, you know, even if you've got a great cast, if you've got a good director and you've got a good play, that certainly um, makes it more likely that it's going to be an enjoyable experience from the for the audience. But it's certainly not a sure thing because um, it's a living, breathing entity. And, and I think that, that, you know, as writers, we perhaps have a little more control over it because we decide when it's time to put this work out, right? And, I, I, you know, I don't know if, if there's the same kind of control with the television series, but one of the things that I did feel with Game of Thrones, and tell me if you felt this, this same, um, I, I've only just started reading the Game of Thrones series now that I've seen the show. Um, I came very late to the show, too. <laughs> and I I felt like with the last season and, you know, a, a little bit before that, like you said, that um, it started to feel more like fan fiction to mm -hmm. me than uh, something that was truly derived from uh, Martin's work. And the more, the closer the series stuck to Martin's work, the richer it felt for me, you know, and certainly a lot of people don't feel that way, you know, so, um, but I, I felt like particularly the last season uh, was like that, that it, it lost that sense of um, richness, that, that sense of nuance. And part of that could have just been that the creators were ready to, to be done and to move on. Okay, let's finish this up, you know, and um, maybe the attention to detail wasn't there, but maybe not, you know, maybe they tried just as hard on that series, but when something hasn't been written yet and you've been following it closely and then you think, okay, I've got this and you really don't have it, you know, because you're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, somebody else's creation, and that's always precarious. I mean, I know from translating um, plays that, you know, I'd never translated anything fictional before, and um, and I translated a couple of plays, gosh, a long, long time ago, and it, it was the first time, and I was in my 20s then, it was the first time that I realized, oh, wow, this is an art. This is something completely... Um, different than I thought it was. It is not just a matter of um, taking this person's words and putting them into this language. And I think it's it's made me terrified of ever having having any of my books translated because I, I you know, I, I know how how wrong it can go, and how um, how important it is not just to have someone who is fluent in two languages, but who is as good a writer or better writer than you are, and who understands your work. And I think that when you're adapting something, even, uh, I mean, obviously, it wasn't going from, you know, English to Spanish with Game of Thrones. Um, but I think that when you're adapting something for television, I think the same principles apply, and it's got to be hard. But um, that being said, I think they did a brilliant job on some seasons, and I was thoroughly disappointed with the last season. <laughs> so, how okay. about you? 
Okay, a couple of things about that. I guess that the fact that you haven't read the books uh, before watching the series was a blessing because <laughs> because, because because for readers, I mean, it was just torture from oh, no. fr from season five onwards. <laughs> but but okay. But anyway, uh, the other side of things here is that. Um, I mean, if I force myself to try to make sense of how they create series and how they develop mm -hmm. them, I mean, even in terms of how things uh, things ended, I mean, w I guess that one of the things that you can do with fictional stories is that uh, there's always a way of making sense of whatever happens. If you just go back and pick the relevant elements from back in the story to create a sort of uh, a coherent or cohesive narrative until there. And, yeah. and that's also why you have different people interpreting the same story in different ways, because different people pay attention to different, different elements, let's say. And so, I mean, the, did it make sense for the Neris to go berserk and burn down King's Landing just because she heard the the bell tolling or something like yeah. I mean, I, I, mean yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean I mean in in a certain uh, given a certain perspective or if you take a certain perspective let's say maybe it does and th that's probably why there's still many people that didn't find uh, any mistake with the series or mm -hmm. I, I mean and they didn't think that there was anything wrong with it I, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying but basically yeah but basically what uh, uh, you find these very frequently that even people uh, even writers and critics I mean different people look at the same thing in different way and they emphasize different bits of the story different elements and and things like that and so at the end of the day it, it can still make sense at least to certain people okay. i i think okay. i i think you're right but at the same time i i feel like uh they didn't do an adequate job of building up to that i think that i mean that I, i'm willing to entertain that she could have done that but they didn't bring me there mm -hmm. do you know what i'm saying they, for me at least, as, as a viewer, they didn't bring me to that place. She was Daenerys and then she became bad Daenerys, crazy Daenerys. And there was no sort of buildup. The only thing that you knew is you knew that she came from a family of people who, who went mad. Right. Um, but, you know, you, it, it kind of stretched credibility for me to have her be this one character and then all of a sudden, they put dark circles under her eyes with makeup, and she was mad. <laughs> you know, that just didn't make any sense to me. And um, it wasn't satisfying. And, you know, I would have liked to have seen, seen it done differently. Let's, let's put it that way. I'd have liked to have mm -hmm. had a, more of a buildup. If you're going to go there, go there. But you have to take me there. You have mm -hmm. to build the ladder you know, that, that allows me to get to that place with this character that, that uh, you know, I've grown very fond of and that, it, fond of, I mean, 
I mean, that I've grown, I think that I've grown to understand, let's put it that way, and that I've, um, you know, developed a, 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 an empathy for, and that I've developed, a, you know, a story in my mind for, and um, I don't know, I felt like, like they just rushed it, you know, and, and, and decided that, uh, that, that it was all already there. They, I, I, I felt like they decided that, that they had already, um, you know, put all the elements into place and all they had to do was make her go crazy. <laughs> and I don't agree. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't think all of the elements were there. Right. Of- I, 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 guess, I guess that there are other things where you can get evidence that they really rushed things. And they didn't do things properly. Like, for example, they introduced a lot of new elements that were Mm -hmm. for nothing. Like, for example, when they introduced the fact that Cersei was pregnant. I Uh, mean, that didn't change anything in the story. Why did they do that? I mean, (laughs) if if at least when they they got Miss Sandy, Tyrion went to her and was able to convince her to not kill her and things have changed because of that. But I mean, that would also not make sense. That would be out of character for Cersei to be convinced by something like that. So they introduced the pregnancy and then they didn't explore it at all in any way that was significant for the narrative at all. So, None. And, then, I, and, then, I and then there were other things like, for example, oh, in the, in the season seven finale, w- w- they were talking about the Golden Company coming uh, to Westeros. And, and okay, so uh, they were hyping up the Golden Company. And yeah. then what did they do? They were just there to die. <laughs> Um, I mean, burned by the dragons, just to have more people there dying. They they didn't change anything. Anything. And and also the the whole March of the Dead that we'd been experiencing throughout all of the seasons. It was just like, okay, there's a big battle. Totally anticlimactic. Oh, and now we've got to go get Cersei. You know, (laughs) is she the real villain? I mean... Uh, yeah, and, and that's the thing because the entire series started with the scene about the White Walkers. Yes. It seemed like the yes. most important element of the story was transcending politics, right? Because and, yeah, and they became like a special effects gimmick in the end. Yeah. You yeah, know, right. just right. something fun to have there. Isn't that isn't that interesting? They're all undead. <laughs> well, that's that's not what made it interesting for me, but okay, sure. Yeah, and, and you know, there's that uh, long part, particularly in season one, season two, th- season three, and even a little bit in season four, about the complexity of politics and all of yeah. the schemes that mm-hmm, went mm-hmm. around there, and that was very interesting. But fascinating, uh, yeah. But but since the story, I guess from the very beginning was pointing toward uh, transcending politics mm-hmm. because because mm-hmm. there was a threat that was yes. larger than people's pity schemes yeah. and things like that and pity yeah. politics 
it would be in the end for them to all come together or I, I mean it wouldn't be exactly like that because there would all, always be people that wouldn't believe in the threat and people yeah. th that would still prefer fighting for themselves and not mm -hmm. uniting with other sure. people I, I mean th th that's okay and that's expectable but uh, I, I mean at the end the white walkers were to be the biggest threat of them all and to be the center stage of all of the things that were happening there but yeah. they just brushed them aside in a single episode they all died it was unbelievable. in a single episode yeah. the 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 um, uh, what was it called the night king didn't have any sort of significant backup story or uh, or background story no. i mean we didn't know his motives at all, at all. And then, okay, so this doesn't matter. Let's go back to the politics. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm so with you. I mean, there were so many ways I felt like they could have made it more satisfying. I, but, I, I mean, it would have been really interesting if somehow there had been, been a, a, a dual fight even going on. Um, they could simultaneously be battling Circe and and battling the undead and then that sort of comes together and 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 uh there could be a, a sort of alliance then a, a late a late coming alliance sort of like the allies with with the soviets right who were originally with with the germans against the white walkers and you know i mean there there are so many ways that um that they could have played it that i felt would have been far more interesting and satisfying but this is this is the route they chose. They chose to make it a special effects gimmick and this incredibly dark, and I mean dark as in there was no light in that episode. I could hardly see what was going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and and then it was just over. And I almost, I honestly almost didn't finish watching the series after that because I didn't care anymore. I, I really didn't care what happened. And I finished watching it just to watch it because I thought, well, and I was watching it with my son. And, and so, so that part was enjoyable. And I was like, well, I guess I'll finish watching it. But I didn't need to. After I finished, you know, after the White Walker episode, I really could have stopped right there. And I wouldn't have missed anything. <laughs> I could have just gotten a summary and rolled my eyes, you know. <laughs> but... Well, I, I guess that we must hope that George R.R. R. Martin will finish the series or the saga in a much more fulfilling kind of way. So, uh, because I mean, I suspect he will. Yeah, because I mean, you can even compare it with other. Uh, fiction uh, that is also audiovisual, like for example, The Lord of the Rings, that in some yeah. ways resembles the story that George R. R. Martin mm. is exploring there, mm. not in other ways, but anyway, yeah. there are a lot of common elements there. And if you look at the movies and at, at the books, I mean, it's not that things are straightforward in the sense that there are the good, the good guys and the bad guys, and the good guys are all allied and things like I mean, they have that that huge threat coming from mm -hmm. Sauron and the Orcs and Saruman and people like that. But at the same time, as the story progresses, he talks a lot about more in the books, of course, because he has more time to do that. But he yeah. talks a lot about 
even historically the conflicts between the different factions the elves and the dwarves yeah. and the men and why the hobbits weren't at least until then that important or that significant and then they become a huge deal and i mean even when they are about to to go through uh, to the last battle i mean there are there's still a lot of conflict going there and they are not certain <laughs> if they will be all allied in the end and if the elves from uh, from that place and that place over there will will go to their aid and I, I mean, and, and even and even after that, <laughs> there's still some conflict because there there are some conflicts of interest, and uh, there are still uh, old uh, old wounds. Let's say mm -hmm. they that haven't closed well enough. Let's say, and people also have to deal with that. But uh, so I guess that what I'm trying to say is that. Even if, even if the story is about trying to transcend people's limitations because they only think about their in-group or about their nation or something like that and bringing them all together to face a common threat. I mean, mm -hmm. even inside that alliance you can still explore conflicts between people and you don't have to sacrifice the final victory of the people you want to win just because mm -hmm. they they are not all perfectly allied let's say exactly it doesn't have to be all tied up in a neat bow um you can hint it you know one of the what one of the things that's that's interesting about it is is the sort of the hint at conflict after after the story ends, too, that, that not everything has been resolved or can be resolved. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that I, I, you know, I, I grew up in this very uh, dramatic family. I was telling you a, a little bit about that, of um, political refugees. And I mean, my mother was named an enemy of the state when she was 12. Right. And so, the, you know, all these in, people who were victims of incredible historical wins, you know? And so as a result, I, I kind of got to see how people behave under these extreme circumstances. And some people are heroes and some people are cowards. Um, some people are villains, but most people are somewhere in between. And um, it, it's interesting to see behave very heroically in one instance and then say utterly fail their own children or, um, you know, be perhaps kind of cowardly in, in one situation and then rise to the occasion in a way you would never expect in another. And um, th that is something that I find very compelling in fiction. And that's why, you know, that's what you're not even talking about Lord of the Rings and, and um, Game of Thrones. And one of the things that makes those series so delicious is that, you know, is that... Um, the authors have uh, the courage and the ability um, to make a character that um, embodies all of these traits, you know, and, and that those traits come out to play depending upon the circumstance. Um, even when it's when that character is, say, a good character, you know, is one of the people that you're rooting for, you can watch them stumble. And you can, 
can see yourself in that too. And, um, I, I, you know, I find that, you know, so incredibly, uh, seductive, you know, as a reader, I'm so drawn in by that. And, um, you know, those are the books. I mean, I, 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 there are all sorts of fun books, and it's certainly fun to read stuff like Superman, you know, someone who is good all the time and who has superpowers. So, you know, there, there's definitely a place for that. But the books that um, that really that bring me into a world, I mean, really bring me into a world that I feel is three-dimensional for me and that I could almost see myself stepping into are the ones, you know, like Lord of the Rings, you know, like the, like that series, like Tolkien series and like Game of Thrones and like Diana Baldwin's Outlander, um, which are also big, thick books. And, um, it just, it, you know, it takes you there. Movies like Dr. Zhivago, I didn't like the book as much, <laughs> but, but I like the movie quite a bit. Um, that, you know, bring you into these extreme circumstances and show you the way people behave, um, the way people behave in, in, in all of these sort of different milieus and with different people. And you watch someone, you know, like in the case of Dr. Zhivago, you know, he, he is a fundamentally good man who has a good marriage. And yet he has this extramarital affair. That's also a beautiful love affair. And I think that would be really hard for um, a reader to uh, forgive, but um the circumstances are so extraordinary that, you know, you end up loving all of the people involved. You end up feeling a, a real connection um, to, you know, both his wife, Tanya, right, and his mistress, Lara. You you sort of love them equally and you see them as, as you see them both as good people and you see Zhivago as a good person doing his best. And that's what makes, that's what makes that such a compelling story, you know, and, and then you have something, you know, you have, you have other stories where, where people perhaps don't behave quite as honorably and maybe under less compelling circumstances. And we watch that unfold. And that's also um, fascinating. But anyway, uh, I, I have a really hard time, I think, with, um, stories that make no attempt unless they're cartoons which is something you know which is which is a wholly different genre but stories that make no attempt to um to show humanity as it really is mm -hmm. you know i kind of get bored i glaze over when um when we're just shown an ideology perhaps or or humanity purely as you'd like to see it or in a way that only flatters your point of view you know what i'm saying yeah 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 and that bit about stories showing humanity as it really is i mean even that is a bit tricky right because i guess mm -hmm. that people one of the things that people also don't want from their stories is for them to be um re real as reality is right yeah. i mean I, well, I, yeah. I mean they want them to be real enough but not really real 
uh, as their lives are, let's say, because right. there are lots of things that happen in our lives that, for example, don't make sense or that we don't like. Or, exactly. Or, or, I mean, it's not that in stories there can't happen things that... Uh, are that we don't like or that we feel bad about or or something like that it's it's that in stories if that happens it has to be integrated into a sort of uh, larger narrative that gives meaning to that bad thing that that's happened that is something that we very rarely have in life i mean if we do, we have to come up with the meaning to it because there's nothing out there, I guess, or, or something that is um, that is really part of the event itself yeah. that, that gives it meaning. It is uh, us ourselves that have to do that kind of work, right? No, you're right. And I think, uh, you know... Um, when you look at something like beauty, for instance, which is a huge element of fiction, right? Uh, I mean, and I really do mean physical beauty. Um, it's very difficult to um, write a story, say, about two lovers, and um, you know, you're not going to make the hero flatulent, for instance, <laughs> you know? and you're not going to put, you know, a really big pimple on the heroine's cheek that that even though those are very real elements right that does take a reader out of it and and takes that fantasy element that you're talking about because you're right there is this sort of there is this balance there is um showing a reader in in an entertaining way uh, what um you know what what humanity is like under certain circumstances, perhaps under extreme circumstances that one doesn't, that one might experience in much smaller ways in our own lives, right? Um, but but there are also these elements that that um, that compel us in other ways, and and beauty is hugely compelling for us as human beings, um, and I think that rightly so. You know, I think that you know not, and I'm not just talking about another human being's beauty about their physical beauty when we walk out into nature you know when we see some beautiful vista when we you know look at our dog my dog who's back here <laughs> making a lot of noise you know and and we might see the beauty of an animal and 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 just the beauty of form those things really do move us and they create empathy i think beauty does create empathy and so it's an incredible device, excuse me, my, my dog. Oh, there, there's the guy. <laughs> and, and if I didn't give him that attention, he would have made a lot of noise. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so, so beauty becomes this, this in, in, powerful element in, um, in a story. And yet, in many respects, it's not very realistic because most people are not fantastically beautiful. <laughs> um, so, um, sorry about that. So, you know, it is. It is. It is this. This. In this balance that um, someone who is trying to create something meaningful uh, for people. Um, to experience, who's trying to, 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 you know, write a novel, build a world, um, television series, whatever it is, these are, there, these are all elements that, um, that have to be taken into account. And it, it's what makes the creative process 
so complicated. It is what makes it an art and not simply, um, you know, if look, if you could just do a paint by numbers and follow, um, you know, these steps the way you might, you know, buy a chair at Ikea and put it together in your home and it looks just like it does in the picture, well, then that would make it all easy. I mean, look that the look at Game of Thrones. The 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 two men I can't remember their names. Good Lord, who um who produced the series are incredibly talented individuals, and yet um, here we are talking about how they utterly failed um, in George R. R. Martin's vision in the last season, especially, but maybe from season five on, right? And it just goes to show you how complicated the creative process is, and how you can't just tinker with it. I mean, I, what is it? I was I, I was watching. I was I was either listening to a podcast or I was watching something on YouTube. It was it was actually about the creative process, and and people were talking about um, uh, the way. Um, Pitches in Hollywood, you know, the way you're pitching something and that uh, the people you're pitching to often don't understand that you can't just throw something in there just because they want it in there, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I think we need a, uh, I think we need a female character right here, for instance. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like, well, but it's about two men trapped in the wild alone together who might end up eating each other. Because <laughs> they have no food, so where are we going to? How how are we going to bring a woman into this? You know, it's 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 things like that of people who don't say, well, I don't know, but we I think we need a woman in this story. You know, it's it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the creative process and of the story being told. You know, and that, um, and how uh you know and how how a story evolves in say a writer's or a filmmaker's mind, and um, that it's not always a direct reflection of of their own um, beliefs, for instance, which I think is really hard for people to understand, which is why what you're saying, you know, that we're, where people think, how can you write a sympathetic murderer, for instance, you know, and people do say that, how could you write something, um, how could you write sympathetically about this person who did all these terrible things? And um, somehow, uh, you know, so, some may believe that, that you actually literally um, are sympathetic to what they're doing and not to them as a human being. It's like, well, no, I'm, I'm really not sympathetic to somebody who hunts people down and ties them up in their basement and murders them. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to the victim, but I'm fascinated at how at uh, how they got that way. I'm fascinated as to why they did it and how that person could also have functioning relationships with um, other people in their lives. Um, my my brother, this is this is kind of an interesting off story, but um, my brother's a psychologist, and he works for the prison system. Mm -hmm. And and he's been working with uh, really hardcore criminals for 20 years, maybe, um, you know, he ran death row in Florida. And then I, he ran the mental health division for like 20 federal prisons. And um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, he calls me and, you know, and I said, Oh, so what's going on? Because I love hearing his stories. They're just fascinating. And he said, Well, something interesting is actually going on. Um, he said, a, a therapist who works for me, it turns out he's a serial killer.
what he said yeah that's exactly how I felt and I said how well did you know him he said actually I knew him very well because we would have to you know once a week we would have to sit down for at least an hour and really go over in detail um, you know what is going on with each prisoner and he said and he was a very good therapist and he said and of all the people I work with he like he's the guy I would have liked to have seen socially <laughs> <laughs> he's like the only reason I didn't is you know my brother has six kids he's like I don't have time to really have a, much of a social life I've got a, I've got a lot of respons responsibilities he's got a big job and he's got a lot of children and an active family life but I, I just thought oh, okay so not only do you have a serial killer working for you but you liked this guy and you wanted to be his friend um so you know that is that's the stuff of that's the stuff of great fiction too, and um, it, you know that's that's the kind of that's when I, I think it, it, that's when reality becomes actually a lot like fiction. I think because that's something that feels like could never happen, and yet it did. And so you know I. I I find it fascinating the way fiction plays with us in that way because yes, there there are all these um, ways in which we may uh, separate ourselves from, say, what we're watching um, on television in a great series or reading in a book, and say, well, that really wouldn't happen in real life because real life is so unpredictable, and um, and yet there are also so many times when we see something happen in real life and we think, you know, a, a writer couldn't have come up with this. You know, who this this is this feels like fiction, and it's that play of walking between those worlds too that is that's so fascinating. You know, and that I think draws people in because there's always that sense of well, it could happen. Right. You know <laughs> that um, that I, I, I was just I was just wondering if. Uh, it could be the case that what people want from stories and fiction is that they want a version of reality mm -hmm. that is condensed in the sense that all of the things that they would give yeah. meaning to in their lives would be condensed into, for example, a book or a movie mm -hmm. or a piece of theater or, I mean, whatever medium. A, a because if you think about it, I mean, one of the things that people want the most in their lives is for their lives to have some sort of meaning, right? Yes. And, and, yeah. they, and we all struggle a lot to give meaning to our lives, mainly, I guess, because every day we have to do a thousand boring, repetitive things <laughs> that exactly. if we think about them, I mean, they don't have any sort of meaning and that's why you can't find them in good uh, literature because I mean you wouldn't be describing for example a guy waking up and going to the subway and then he, he looks down he looks up he looks to the wall he looks down he looks up yeah. while, while he's waiting for the subway to come so I, I, I mean it, it, it seems to me that it should be something like that because basically all of the things that people find bore uh, or uh, dead, mm -hmm. uh, dead boring, let's say, because there are, of course, yeah. so, some elements in fiction that are a little bit boring, but right. pe people also go through them because they tell something uh, important about what's happening there. Um, and I mean, perhaps it's a distilled 
version of reality where uh, all of the unnecessary elements that people have to deal with and that uh, work, let's say, as obstacles in their lives for them to think, oh, okay, so this, this life that I'm living, this is wonderful, just meaningful things happening in my life, uh, positive ones and negative ones, they're all meaningful. So, uh, I mean, I, I was just wondering if that's what people want from, from fiction. I think so. I mean, I, I think that's certainly um, one of the many elements they want from fiction. I think that um, I think that the whole process of entering into a possible world um, satisfies exactly what you're talking about. You know, you were talking about you know most people just go into the subway, right? Now, for most of us, we go to the subway, look at our watch, maybe or our phones. Now, um, you wait, you wait, you look up. You get on the subway, you sit down, maybe you read your book, and then you find yourself at work. Mm -hmm. Now, but some days you might get on the subway and there's a crazy guy singing. Right. Or there's a beautiful girl. Now, most of the time, the crazy guy singing just sings. He doesn't turn into a demon and take you on a trip, right, <laughs> into Hades, and then you experience the nine circles of hell. And um, most of the time, you don't really get to meet the beautiful girl. You just watch her from afar, and you think, wow, I sure would like to meet her. Maybe I can figure out a way to bump into her and um, start up a conversation. But most of the time, that doesn't even happen because that takes a tremendous amount of courage to do something like that. And also, we often don't have time. We're headed somewhere. I don't have time to strike up a conversation with this girl. I sure would like to, but I've got to be at work in 15 minutes or whatever it is. And fiction, I think, takes us into those possible worlds. You know, um, Harry Potter starts off, you know, living in a cupboard under the stairs, having this droll life, and then a letter comes. And that's the call to adventure, right? It's the call to adventure that's in any great story. And, I, you know, we're all waiting for our call to adventure, you know, especially when we're young. Um, that call to adventure might be traveling or going off to school. Um, you know, there's this great, you, you've probably never seen it uh, because I doubt it ran, I don't think it ran internationally, but it was, it's, it's old. I mean, it's, I think it's from the mid-1990s. There was this um, company called Monster.com, and it was an online job service where you looked for a job. It was the first of its kind, and it got bought up by some other company, so it doesn't exist anymore. And, but they had the most brilliant ad. Um, it had little kids saying things like, when I grow up, I want to be a middle manager. <laughs> when I grow up, you know, all these horrible, boring, non-aspirational things that many of us grow up to be, right? But it was, it was really perfect because it was saying, no, don't settle for that. Nobody says, when I grow up, I want to be a middle manager. No, they, you want to rule the world. You want to you be a 
best-selling author, you want to be a movie star, you want to be a baseball player for the major leagues, you know, come to monster.com, let go of your boring, terrible life that you, that, that's driving you insane, stop going to that job that you hate where you just, you know, punch your time card and then you sit there and type up silly memos all day, go to Monster, make your dreams come true, become who you always wanted to be, right? And that's, you know, they really uh, tapped into that call to adventure. And um, so I think that that's really, you know, what you're talking about with the separation from reality. Um, I, I think the reality that's reflected is it is often that sort of mundane reality that we all start off in, right? And that we all live in to some extent, even those of us who, who do love our jobs and do love what we do. You know, you love doing this. I love doing this. This is really fun. Um, but still, you know, we have hours of mundane work in our lives that we have to do that... Um, that, you know, it, it would be obviously a lot more fun spent, um, you know, climbing a mountain or following a demon into Hades as long as we get out, right? <laughs> or, or, or any one of these things. And, um, and I think as, as, as human beings, we're always looking to see and wondering how we would respond under extreme circumstances. I think it's why, um, young men and, and women are drawn to war. Nobody really wants to be shot at. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying. Yes. But at the same time, you want to know what you're made of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, it's, it's something that we explore on the page. It's something that we explore, you know, in a movie or in a television series, whatever it is. Um, it's why, uh, hospitals, police dramas, and wars will always make their way into fiction because they bring us to places that are extreme and we're dying to know what we're gonna be like under those circumstances. We are just dying to know. And the truth of the matter is that those circumstances are satisfying, even when they do really happen to us. And that's the dirty little secret because um, I don't know anyone who's been to war that describes it as a purely bad experience. Mm -hmm. um, there are many elements that they hate about it, of course, but they might talk about the camaraderie. I mean, my father-in-law went to, you know, he was a, a, he was, you know, my husband's the youngest of eight children. So my father-in-law was much older and um, he went to, um, Marine Corps reunions. He was a World War II Marine. He went to Marine Corps reunions until his health gave out. He would. He did not have a lot of money, and yet he would save his pennies if the Marine Corps reunion was in Hawaii, which was an unbelievable expense for him. You know, this was this was a man who was he was blue collar. You know, and he had eight children, and yet he went to Hawaii to go to the Marine Corps reunion. Right. And his friends from the Marine Corps were from all over the place and from every social class. And yet when they got together, they were equals. <laughs> and, um, you know, these are, you know, I, I, I had, uh, I, I, my youngest child was born very ill, for instance. And 
an awful experience. I mean, really an awful experience, but not, not entirely awful either. You know, there was a great beauty to it. Um, people who I didn't even know who came out of the woodwork to help us. Just, you know, I, I remember this woman, um, I, I hardly knew her. My older two children were in preschool with her twins. And she just showed up at my house and said, I'm going to take your kids to an amusement park today <laughs> so that I could spend the day alone with my baby who was uh, going through chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And she went and she took my kids to an amusement park. And she dropped them off late at night. I mean, it was like 8 p.m. when she brought them back. She'd fed them all day. She'd taken them out. I, I hardly knew her. I mean, I was so grateful. And then when, and on top of it, she came in and she said, oh, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm a child psychiatrist. She was a Yale-trained child psychiatrist, right? And she, and she said, and, and I just want you to know that whatever you're doing, you're doing it right, because they're, they could be a real disaster right now. And, and they're not. They're, they, feel, they feel like you're in charge and that their world is not going to fall apart. I can't, I, I haven't. I don't even know if this woman still lives in town. I think she and her husband moved. Um, that's how little I knew her. And yet she performed this incredible service for me. And she did it without expecting anything in return. And, you know, a couple of years later, I ran into her husband at uh, at the playground. And, you know, he I had no idea that was her husband. And he told me his name. And I said, oh, is this your wife? And I said, yeah, and, and I told him that story. He had no idea who I was. He'd never even heard of me, you know what I mean? And, um, and I said, I just, I just want to ask you to thank her because that meant so much to me. And I, I, was, I think I thanked her then, but I don't even remember because I was, I was sort of in a fog. And what she did meant everything. And it was just one day. You know, it's, it's experiences like that that, um, that are incredibly meaningful. And um, it is why I think, you know, a world without pain is just a wasteland. It, it never brings us to those places. And, and I think that fiction also has a role, you know, it plays that role, because if we are not experiencing that level of, uh, of intensity in our lives, and w- we can't maintain that level of intensity, right? Nobody wants to keep going through these these um, awful experiences. You know, you, that's that's incredibly taxing. Mm-hmm. But um, one way that we can experience them and imagine ourselves in those situations is through fiction and is through uh, you know these these very, very complicated narratives that, um, that I think help expand our self-knowledge, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, you were talking about war and I mean, of course, in this conversation, I'm also trying to leave morality aside yeah. because, because I, I mean 
it it doesn't make sense to talk about literary stuff and even sometimes to be serious about how the world really is and how people experience the world always yeah. with the burden of looking moralistically let's say at things yeah. because because yeah. because i mean people uh, people are not there there's only a very tiny percentage of, of people in the world and in society that are true psychopaths and i mean people yeah. are not uh, people are not stupid so uh, the uh, there's one very real and good reason why uh, throughout history good literature always included elements of war it's because yeah. war is deadly meaningful i mean yes there there's almost nothing in life that is as meaningful as participating in war because right. all of the things yeah that you care the most about are there i mean you're trying to protect your country your community your family your wife your children your own life mm -hmm. the life the life of your comrades uh, i mean you're killing other people that mm -hmm. even though it's awful it's seriously meaningful and yes. uh, and uh, and i mean and then there's also that element and i guess that's why people in the military have those sorts of things where people kind of lose themselves individually in mm -hmm. the collective in the sense mm -hmm. that they have all of those synchronic uh, activities like marching at the mm -hmm. same pace and chanting and moving at the same speed and things like that and i mean and all of those things combined I mean, at the end of the day, even if we look at it and we can look at it from our moral, modern moral lenses, let's say, we can think, oh, that's awful, people are dying, people are getting injured, people are destroying resources, people are killing uh, old people, children, women, destroying all sorts of things and so on. But, okay, that's true, but at the end of the day, it's still a grandiose place to be because yes. all, all of what's meaningful is uh, combined into that, uh, that space. There's a reason uh, that they call a battlefield a theater. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you have the same in um, Portuguese, if, if you have that same expression, but... Y yes, um, we have. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it would be interesting to see how how many languages express a battlefield the same way, wouldn't it? Because I, that seems to me to be a, a, you know, such an accurate description. And um, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, every single compelling human experience seems to happen on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I, I knew this woman, some years ago, who was an aunt of a friend of mine, and she was uh, a Holocaust survivor, and um, she had this really compelling story. She'd been an artist, and she was chosen by uh, Joseph Mengele, who uh, was the doctor at Auschwitz, 
the sort of evil doctor, the angel of death, they called him. He forced her to come and paint his medical experiments on gypsies because she was a wonderful painter. And um, he didn't like photography because he thought it was a peasant's medium. And um, so she has this incredibly, you know, harrowing story. She and her mother survived two death marches, all of this. And um, she would talk about how uh, some of the most marvelous people she ever met, she met in the concentration camp. And that it was that when she and her mother got off the bus after, after liberation, after they'd been liberated, from um, Auschwitz and they were taken by bus back to Prague and you know everyone they knew was dead um, and uh, several of the people on the bus had been political so they still had family uh, had been political and not had been Jewish so so their whole families had not necessarily been exterminated for instance and she said she remembers getting off the bus and there were all these people waiting for the other people you know family members friends and it was just she and her mother standing there, and she turned to her mother and said, I want to go back. You know? That, I'm sorry, that makes me really emotional to hear that, because, I mean, you know, she told this story to me personally, and I've also seen her tell it on um, the uh, Holocaust. Uh, you know, she's been videotaped for uh, the Shoah Foundation. That's it, for Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation, her story. And she told me the story in person, and it was it was just, it was an incredibly emotional story because I got it. I absolutely understood what she was talking about. I want to go back. I want to go back to this place of heightened emotion mm-hmm. where um, I saw people be the worst they can be, but I also watched people be the best they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously she did not mean that literally. She was thrilled to be... Um, to be uh, liberated. I mean, she barely survived and, um, you know, was anemic and and ill and all all of the things that that you would imagine um, someone who'd spent, you know, several months in a concentration camp, how how they would be physically. But um, these are incredibly moving and um, I I think vital experiences for us. And what was interesting is when she would be asked to go speak at um, at events, you know, talking about the Holocaust, she said people would literally, the the people who were organizing the event would say to her, you're not allowed to say there's anything good about the experience. Mm -hmm. And she would look at them and say, what are you talking about? Of course there's something good about the experience. That's what makes this compelling. You know, she was an artist, so she certainly felt that way. And they'd say, you are, you are not allowed to do that. It, it was all bad. And if you talk about it in any way that um, makes it sort of a, 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 a more expansive experience, um, I think, you know, obviously they were afraid that, that that would in any way give give any kind of glory to the experience, but that wasn't what she was doing at all. And I think that that fear is really uh, misguided. And it's something that I think that we hear people talking about now um, when, when uh, there is a criticism, for instance, made of um, 
I, I'm trying to think of, a, of an actual example, but there, there, it feels like there are just so many um, criticisms made of, of, say, movies that might glorify war or, uh, or um, books that might glorify a masculine perspective, for instance. It, um, there's this, this fear that if we talk about something, that um, somehow it gives it validity instead of um, helping us self-reflect, instead of helping us really think through it and play intellectually with those concepts. And um, I, anyway, I, I just think it's misguided because I think we all, of course, know that these these very difficult experiences are conflicted and um, offer many different experiences for us. They are not just one kind of experience. And uh, that's, that's also what, uh, what makes, say, world building and walking into a world such, such a compelling experience because it's not only a sensory experience. It's not only atmospheric where we might see dragons in this world, for instance, which, which, uh, which kind of, is part of that call to adventure, but it also lays out all the different elements of our psyche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, while you were talking, one of the things that came to my mind was uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago. Because, yeah. I, I mean, the things he talks about there, I mean, I can't even imagine no, go, I know. Going, going through that. But, no. uh, but at the same time, weirdly enough, uh, th there's an element of beauty to it. Because, because I, I mean, the things... Stunning talks, beauty. Uh, partic particularly when he talks about those people that he says are infinitely more admirable than he himself is because yes. they stood there firmly and they, they, they never abandoned their morality and their integrity. I mean, yeah. for, for me, those people are saints. Me too, because I have no illusion that I would be one of them. <laughs> you know, yeah, I yeah. don't know. You know, I, chances are I wouldn't be because most of us aren't. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to be. Well, I'm almost 100% certain that I wouldn't be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I'm almost 100% certain I wouldn't be one of them too. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's true. Um, yeah, it's uh, same as, I don't know if you've read Primo Levi or Cheslav Milos. Primo Levi is an Italian concentration camp survivor and uh, Cheslav Milos is Polish and, and writes uh, more about the Soviets, but, um, but it's, it's also very similar. And um, I, you know, I, I read an essay some years ago, I can't even remember who it was by, but Primo Levi ended up committing suicide late in life. Mm -hmm. And this essay was about the fact that um, Primo Levi could never get over his time in the concentration camp um, because it, it was a, a, there was so much intensity to that experience that the rest of his life could not match that intensity and it brought him into a deep depression. Mm -hmm. And I, I read that when I was very young and I remember being fascinated by that concept 
that um, that that you don't that that you could be brought into a place of despair, um, not just because of a painful experience, but because of the lack of a painful experience, mm-hmm. and that the specter of that experience is greater than just um, than just the pain itself. It is about that intensity. And I think that that is a very dangerous concept for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It feels dangerous. I don't actually think it is dangerous at all. I think right. that's very, I think it's fascinating. And I think that it's something that, uh, you know, I, I love to explore. I, but, um, but I think that at its core um, is, is very frightening to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, I mean, we're talking about things like war and the gulags yeah. and concentration camps and yeah. the, the most awful things humanity has ever come up mm-hmm. with. But uh, I mean, uh, of course, <laughs> I don't want to go to war and I don't want to go to a no, neither do I. <laughs> and I don't want to do that to other people. I mean, that's awful. Uh, it, uh, I guess that we're, what we're talking about here is that I mean, uh, George R. R. Martin also talks about this. He says that, for example, in war, you see the worst and the best of people at yes. the same time. So, and I mean, and, and it's interesting because even when we look back in history and even uh, nowadays to the people we admire the most, I, I mean, I can't think of one single person uh, that has made something m- meaningful or significant in history that hasn't gone through awful things in their lives. So uh, I don't know if, if you think about political leaders and political activists like Nelson Mandela and Martin yeah. Luther King and Gandhi. I mean, they went through so many awful things in their lives that, that sometimes it's almost unimaginable how they manage to, to keep their head sane, let's say, because, uh, and uh, I mean, because it seems that uh, it's only in those sorts of situations and not simply in everyday mundane life that people really are able to uh, bring out the best that they have to give to the world or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that saying, uh, war makes a good man great. You know, we were just, um, I was recently uh, watching uh Ken Burns, I don't know if you know who Ken Burns is. He's a documentary filmmaker here in the U.S. and and he um, he did a really uh, big series on the Vietnam War. He did oh, one on oh, jazz. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, and he did one on the Civil War. And my uh, and we were just watching the one on the Civil War. You know, we live in Virginia, and so many of the key battles happened here. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, a friend of ours, his ancestor. The war began at his house and ended at his house. The treaties were actually signed at his home, and um, and so and we'd never watched the Ken Burns Civil War series, and we thought, well, we have to do this, right? Even though I mean, we're transplants to the South, where my husband and I are both from the, the Midwest, but um, I, I really became interested in the story of Ulysses of Ulysses S. Grant, who um, was the Union general who won the war, because he had. Even though he went to West Point, he'd basically been a ne'er-do-well. I mean, he 
wasn't a very good businessman. <laughs> he drank a lot. <laughs> he um, he really wasn't very good at anything except war. Right. And he cared deeply about his men. I don't mean he, you know, was great at war because he was this killing machine or anything like that. He was an he was an incredibly nuanced person who um, who cared deeply about what he was doing and cared deeply about preserving the union. He cared deeply about um, keeping his men alive and and having them come home whole. And yet he was so good at this. He within a year's time. He quite literally went from being a clerk at a little store in the middle of nowhere, working for his dad and not even doing very well at it and, you know, drinking way too much to leading the Union Army and then becoming the president of the United States. It's incredible, you know, but, uh, you know, these these extreme circumstances show us what we're made of. And... Um, that can be also, you know, this, this incredibly empowering experience. And, um, for some people it can be utterly transformative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also something that, uh, is incredibly important, you know, to us as people, but also, you know, such an incredibly uh, important element of fiction is transformation. Mm-hmm. is, you know, watching a character go from here to here yeah. and watching that mechanism because we struggle to change in our own lives. You know, we struggle to, um, to, to change those, those, those elements of our personality that maybe don't serve us very well, you know. <laughs> um, maybe that is being afraid of conflict, and so we're afraid to um, come to our boss and, and ask for a raise or ask for um, more responsibility or whatever it is. Or, um, or perhaps we bring that into our relationships uh, or perhaps we're bullies or whatever it is, you know, whatever our particular um, personality quirks are. You know, we struggle to change those. We struggle to become uh, better people, to um, become, you know, a person that other people talk about favorably. And, you know, I think that we are always in some way looking at what our story looks like to others. You know, and I think this has become really... um, uh, plain on social media, you know, where people have become their, their own sort of PR machines, right? Especially on mediums like Facebook or whatever, where, um, you, you know, you have these, uh, you, you have these perfect Facebook families that you see of people who are always like, it's like they're on a, a, a sitcom all the time. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> their vacations are fantastic. They're always smiling. They're always dressed well. And, um, it's it's sort of it's trying to 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 make a story of your life um, that uh, that other people will buy right, and that that you will buy that perhaps, and I don't think it's purely for other people. I think that that in in some sense uh, we feel that if we put that out there, that maybe we'll live up to it too, and. Um, 
Anyway, I think fiction does the same thing. I think that we are constantly looking for ways in which uh, we can watch a transformation happen so that we can understand that mechanism. How do I do that? You know, how do I change? How do I um, bring myself to that point? How do I go from this, from, from being this, this sad person, this loser in my, you know, in my own eyes to a winner? you know, to the person who gets the girl or the guy, to the person who gets the job, to the person who, who um, people are talking about um, in a way that, that, that makes me feel proud. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, yeah. I, there, there's almost no story that doesn't have some element of that, you know, that, that, that we find, you know, that, that we get hooked on, you know, I mean, definitely, Tolkien stories are all about that. You know, Game of Thrones is all about that. Characters struggling to be... <sighs> and, and, you know... Be, you know? And, you know, it's interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking that maybe another thing that fiction does is... So uh, Nietzsche had this very interesting saying, I mean, it was a bit arrogant for him to say that, but he, he said that he was trying to write in a single sentence what the other philosophers took books to write, let's say, something yeah. like that, I'm paraphrasing. And I guess that one element that fiction also has is the fact that uh, good writers are able to uh, through a very a very powerful description, um, reach people even at a philosophical level in ways that you can't do, do if you write a philosophical essay or right. a, an entire philosophical book. Because, for example, one example that came to my mind right now was. Uh, when I was reading the first time uh, uh, Dante's Div Divine Comedy and the first part Inferno, and then uh, Dante arrived at the lowest circle of hell, and he was saying how people there were, fr were, were in a frozen lake, basically, and they were frozen up to different levels in their body, and then there's, there was the devil, the tree had the devil with the devil, I guess it was Judas and Brutus, I guess the guy that betrayed Caesar, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, I, I, w I was just completely struck by that because I thought th th this guy is a complete genius because yes. because he, he, he not only um, arranged a perfect metaphor for what he was trying to convey there, putting people in a frozen lake where they couldn't move and they couldn't have any sort of contact with other people, and so that would be the worst form of punishment ever, uh, even worse than being cut and being buried and being, I mean, all of those awful things that he talks about in the book, uh, but also because it shows betrayal as the worst sin of them all. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, that was... That's just a stroke of genius, I guess. I, I agree. And the whole, uh, and also just being frozen, it, it, 
to me at least, seems like a perfect metaphor for depression. <laughs> right. That, um, that to me seems physically how depression feels. You know, that you can't move. Mm -hmm. And you don't even know why you can't move, but you can't. You're stuck. You're stuck in a pattern of thought. You're stuck in um, a mood. And um, I love that. And you're right. That is absolute genius. Because when you are able to create a metaphor for something that is so complete, that is so perfectly painted in every possible shade that reflects um, a feeling on such a deep and instinctive level, there's no slogan that can help you feel that. There's, you know, there's, there's nothing that provides that level of immediacy mm -hmm. and emotional connection other than a perfectly executed um, concept, let's say. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it is a sort of imaginative, fictional, creative concept or whether it's a philosophical concept. Um, what, you know, whatever it is there, that is what, that's what I think anybody who is a creative person and, and I'm using that very broadly. I don't just mean people who are artists or artsy, <laughs> um, but anyone who is a creative person is striving for that is really trying to get to the heart of a matter is, is, um, is, is trying deeply to understand um, what, what motivates. Oh. It's not just motivation of feeling. It's not just motivation of thought. I think that it is deeply instinctive. I think that it it's, goes even deeper than that. It's, it's maybe what we call gut feelings, you know, but it's, it's, what, um, it's what we respond to whether we like it or not. And what might even make us cringe because we find ourselves maybe responding to something that's not palatable. You know, I loved the, um, I loved all the, the, the sort of controversy around uh, the novel Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I found it so fascinating because um, it, it made people so emotional. You know, they were the fans who were so passionate about it. And then there were the people who were so furious about it. You know, they were absolutely furious that this was, um, that this became a phenomenon. They were furious because it was badly written. They were furious because it was anti-feminist or whatever. They were furious because, you know, it was, it was uh, yeah, because playing into every stereotype. You know, they were absolutely furious about it. But at the same time, you're like, look, let's look at this. Let's face this. This is a perfect storm. This is so interesting. Um, one way or another, we are all responding to this and we're all dancing to this tune. There's got to be a reason why. And it's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not because this was forced down our throats by a marketing machine, for instance, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we picked this up all on our own. Um, and why is that, you know?
we I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm forever interested in, in the sort of myths that never, ever, ever go away. No matter how hard we try, no matter um, how many treatises are written about how destructive they have been to humanity and to our psyches, um, no matter how unfashionable they become. Uh, you know, there are certain myths which simply will not die. They've been a part of us. They've been a part of us since the dawn of time, since the dawn of humanity, at least, if not the dawn of time. And um, they, even when we attempt to destroy them, mm -hmm. they come back perhaps in another form. Yeah, and it's interesting because many of those myths and maybe some people, if we're talking about characters, would call them archetypes following, mm -hmm. following the Jungian terminology, let's, let's yeah. say. Uh, I, I guess that it's interesting that some of those things are successful uh, across uh, different social groups and people mm -hmm. from different socioeconomic status and, and people with widely different uh, educational backgrounds because, for example, there are things like and that um, people that are perhaps more intellectual, let's say, uh, they think that those sorts of things are a bit silly, but mm -hmm. there are things like romance novels yeah. and, and I mean for men of course, more hardcore pornography that, I mean, it almost doesn't matter what type of person you are, what is your socioeconomic status, if you went to college or not. I mean, you can always find women and men all across the social strata that like those sorts of things. And uh, even historically, I mean, for uh, they, and it seems that they will always like it. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the romance genre. I, I find the romance genre absolutely fascinating. Here you have a genre that is read cross-culturally and across class and racial lines entirely. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, everybody, a, a PhD will read the same romance novel that um, say an uneducated woman uh, who you know works at a call center or whatever or, or has an undemanding an intellectually undemanding job mm -hmm. um, will read and it's you know we, we talked about this a little bit um, I think we, we talked about it over over email or something or, or direct message how um how you know you have these people all reading the same story because they all have you know the common dream of love but it's it, but it's more than that too because they're all reading the same types of stories i mean many different kinds of women read 50 shades of gray and it everyone will admit it's not a literary masterpiece you know <laughs> <laughs> you know even the women who um who you know really enjoyed it who who you know are incredibly well read and and uh you would think are are not really interested and they'll go oh i've read the whole series you know <laughs> i read every single one of them and i'm not ashamed to admit it you know and it's one of the reasons i mean i'm i'm writing this sort of uh epic 
romance with fantasy elements right now. I usually write these historical um, Cold War thrillers, which which I also love to write. But but I decided that I was going to um, try my hand at a really epic sort of epic romance, you know. Um, and I mean, to be fair, it still has like war and all of the things that I love in it. So it's not you know a straight out romance. It's it's uh, it's it's a romance a lot more in the realm of um, if uh, you know maybe Outlander or something like that, which which um, has so many other things going on. It has history and it has all of that. But the fact is, I wanted to make the the core of the story about these two lovers, um, which was never a place that I expected to go as a writer because I just wasn't really. I'm not that I'm not interested in relationships. All of my books have, I think, a meaningful relationship in them. But I never thought that I would be writing something that was so relationship centric. Let's put it that way. And what got me writing it was um, that on my, you know, on my blog, I, I whenever I wrote about love, people wrote in. I mean, so, you know, they would always write to me, but they'd write and they'd write to me personally. You know, they'd email me. It wasn't just they would comment on on the uh, on the actual essay on my blog. Oftentimes they wouldn't. Oftentimes they would skip that and they would just come to me personally and they would tell me their love stories, right? Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting about it was that Most of the people who wrote to me, the ones who told me really detailed emotional love stories were men. I found that I was really surprised by that. Um, And it's not that women wouldn't write to me and tell me their love stories. They would, but they tended not to go into the level of detail. And they tended not to bear their souls as much and I don't know if that's because maybe you know women kind of tend to talk about that stuff more and they have people with whom to talk about those things with they talk about maybe they talk with their other friends or their mothers whatever it is and maybe men just don't have that outlet and I'm a safe outlet because they never have to meet me (laughs) they never have to see me in their own lives right but yet they can uh, they I mean would write these like single spaced three page detailed stories, love stories to me. And um, it was, they were incredibly moving for one thing. And it was also a really fascinating dynamic for me. And so I started really looking into, well, what makes, what makes a really compelling male character? What is it about um, a male character that really makes, has this character be a man that other men want to be and be a man that women want to be with? And um, I started thinking about, uh, you know, these two groups of men that I met. And this one group I met when I was much, much younger, and they were war photographers. Mm. And they were incredibly charismatic 
as you can imagine. You know, they had great stories, right? And they were wild. You know, I mean, they were always out there having sex with women and and taking mushrooms and you know what I mean, and just having a wild time. But they were really wild guys, and yet they had these really dangerous jobs, and they were very courageous, and they um, they, you know, were were willing to put themselves into um, incredibly dangerous situations that required, uh, you know, more than courage. It required a, you know, a deep, a a sort of, a deep grit of, I don't know how else to describe this, but um, it, it, it required a very archetypically masculine, um, response to a situation. And then I also got to know a group of um, soldiers. There were uh, men in the Marine Corps through uh, one of my husband's close friends who's now a three-star general in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And um, both of these men uh, were very courageous. Both of these groups of men were very courageous. And both these men had no problem getting women. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And but and but as I was looking at the two groups, I was thinking to myself, okay, if I went into a bar and these two groups of men were there, who would I be? Who would I be drawn to more? What is it about these two groups of men? And you know, which one of them would I be drawn to more? And I ended up thinking I probably would have been drawn to uh, the soldiers more. And there was um, one basic reason for that. And it was because they seemed to be executing to a higher calling, if that makes sense. They had a vision of something greater than themselves that they were executing to. And one of the things that I thought was was quite interesting about the the men who I knew, and that, granted, these are small control groups. These are really only two groups of men that I knew. I didn't do any kind of extensive research. But, um, but, the, but the war photographers, uh, you know, I remember having conversations with them about um, how, like, sometimes I wonder what I'm even doing there. Mm-hmm. Because here I am taking pictures. What am I doing? What is, what is this? How am, how am I helping the situation? And... Um, I think that the the Marines had a very clear idea of what they were doing there. And another element that I also found really interesting is is uh, the war photographers were very ironic. And I remember I was talking to one, and he was talking about a friend of his who had been shot by a firing squad. And he'd been a war photographer, and he'd been shot somewhere in the Middle East. And you know, I was like, oh my god, you know, I said, why, why was he shot? And this guy said, they didn't like him. You know, he said it in a very sort of ironic, funny way. And, you know, when you would talk to the Marines about their fallen comrades, um, there was no irony. You know, they would sit back, take a deep breath. Um, I can't remember any of them actually crying, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. You know, they, they weren't afraid to show their grief mm-hmm. in any way. And... Um, I, I, I attributed that possibly, and maybe I'm wrong, to the sense that I think that they, they had a very clear idea of what they were doing 
in that circumstance and why they were doing it. And um, and it was it was a little more muddied in the case of um, this group of war photographers. I think that 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 their their vision for why they were there was not quite so clear. It's like, well, I guess I'm there to get a great picture and win a Pulitzer Prize, but no, I'm there for more than that because I I really am emotionally invested in what's going on there. And yet, you know, there's that push and pull I think between those two competing. Um, goals maybe you know and and it, which which was not present with the marines that i could see and so you know i was already then you know looking at that as a writer and i was thinking okay so when i'm building a male character what what is the most compelling thing then about a male character that men want to uh, man men want to be around and men men a man men want to follow and a man women want to be with um, and I think that um, it is that sense of of purpose, of I know what I am, and I know why I'm doing this, and I will execute to that. It's that very decisiveness, and um, anyway, so that that actually <laughs> it's a long story that I've just told, but. That's actually what brought me into wanting to write um, a love story, uh, you know, a, a story about lovers, that is, because there is so much that, you know, we're going through all of these tremendous changes on the surface of um, roles that men and women are, are you know, the, the changing roles of men and women my dog is making noise, sorry, the changing roles of men and women uh, in society, you know, and we're, we're fighting about this. We're having, you know, we're having, you know, we're, we're you know, and then I add transgenderism into this. It's all very confusing and no one really knows what to do with it all. And yet what are the underlying myths that we all respond to, whether we want to or not? Mm -hmm. What is it, you know, that, makes us swoon that makes us angry you know and it's often the same thing <laughs> it's not often but uh, you know it's it's not unusual for it to be the same thing and um and so uh, anyway I, I i that's that's why i thought um you know i i came to think that that romance or romantic stories um are just so ripe with with everything that's going on right now and and they always are because love is so central to our existence in one way or another whether it's romantic love or whether it's you know the feelings that we have for our our siblings or or a you know a comrade in arms whatever it is and um you know, it's so easy to lose sight of the things that bind us together and the things that we respond to, whether we want to or not, because we're we're so busy adapting to change right now, and we don't know what to make of it, and we don't know how it's going to turn out, and we might have a very rigid idea of how we want it to turn out, and we try to fit that narrative often, you know, that square peg into a round hole, and... um you know, what happens when we don't fight that? Mm -hmm. What right. happens, uh, you know, when we submit to whatever it is 
that we're feeling about, say, love, mm-hmm. and um, what we feel, what we respond to when it comes to, um, you know, the people who make our hearts flutter. Right. And, you know, when we succumb to our, our, our greatest dreams and hopes about um, the fulfillment of love. Uh, oh, uh, I, th- I think I, I've already said what I wanted. I was basically trying to ask you if you agree that uh, when people try to politicize or moralize uh, literature, fictional literature too much, if it doesn't seem that they get into a place where, in yeah. fact, they are not uh, doing what they say they're doing, that that is that they are really caring about other people, about minorities, about different right. social groups and so on, but they are only trying to focus on what matters to them because, I mean, every uh, uh, another person that is sufficiently different from them, uh, they 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 aren't able to pro, to portray them in a humane way it's it just come, comes up as a sort of caricature of another human being or something like that i find it boring you know i mean for the same it's not i i think it's kind of narcissistic and narcissists are boring <laughs> and and not that there isn't great literature written by narcissists <laughs> because there is um I guess it depends on, on, on the artistry of, of, of the individual, but most of the time it's done with very little artistry or not enough artistry. And, and that's the problem, you know, and, and people start to sort of glaze over because if, I don't know, when you have something so black and white, it, it starts to seem trite. You know, it's it's like the communist propaganda play that I was telling you about when I was reading all of these communist propaganda plays trying to find one that we could um that we could produce and that we could um play without torturing the audience it was really really difficult because you know and even the one we chose you know the (laughs) monologues were utterly ridiculous you know they were literally so dumb they were like i will work I will work for the state until I drop, you know, stuff like that, where you're, why, you're, you're listening to this thinking, oh my God, I can't, I can't even believe someone could write that with a straight face and think that they were going to convince anybody. And I think, I think that's, that's part of the problem is that when you're trying really hard to convince someone instead of um, letting a narrative blossom mm-hmm. and seeing where it takes you, which is, I think, what the best artists do. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't have control of what's happening in the narrative. They do. But, um, but it's, it is a process, I think, of discovery and manipulation that has to be balanced very, very carefully. And when it's out of balance, like, for instance, when you try to you know, pigeonhole an ideology into something, whether it's a religious ideology or a political ideology, um, it's obvious and it's heavy handed and it stops being entertaining. Mm-hmm. Right. It just, yeah, and th- it just very, gets didactic, mm-hmm. you know, and who wants to be preached yeah, 
No, I'm, uh, I was going to say, yeah, I'm sorry, go. Uh, no, no problem. Uh, I was just going to say that that's very interesting because you were referring to, for example, being deeply religious or in or better said, injecting a religious ideology mm -hmm. into the story. But it's very interesting because good writers can create a deeply religious story yes. with, without uh, uh, having it contaminating the whole panorama, let's say, because, for right. example, for example, Dante was perfectly yeah. able to do yeah. that. And and yeah. it's obvious and it's obvious that that's a religious story. But uh, I mean, I mean, even a secular person can perfectly well read that uh, and yeah. take and take some uh, good time and some value out of it. So. Well, that's it. And um, and that takes yeah, Dante, didn't Dante work on it until he was 80? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Something I, I, like that. I, I, but, I, I, think... I mean, boy, talk about talk about an example of letting a narrative blossom. And um, no, I, it, it's it's true. It's it's not that those subject matters aren't um, aren't something that an artist can tackle. It's not that you can't tackle ideology or politics or religion, for instance. Um, but it, it, it takes, for one, even if you are passionate about that ideology, I think that it takes a tremendously open mind to write about it with any artistry. artistry. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, good Lord, it's been a long time since I've read Dante, but, um, but like you said, a secular person can read it. If a secular person can read what you've written, it has un undoubtedly been written by someone with an open mind, by someone who is able to imagine another side mm -hmm. and how someone who perhaps does not share their fervor um, might, uh, might approach their work. And, and that person can never demonize that person. Right. Otherwise, it's alienating and it's boring. Uh, except for the people who agree with the ideology, you know, I mean, you've immediately alienated, um, you know, half the people who would read your work and um, the other half are simply being validated by you then, you know, it's, you're, I don't, I don't understand what that brings to the conversation. Right. Basically. I think that, I think that it, it brings very little, I mean, I suppose it has its place. Everything does, but it's it's certainly not interesting to me you know i'm i'm willing to read anything i'm willing to read any kind of ideology um from any perspective as long as it is written in a way that i find compelling mm -hmm. that i find open and engaging and entertaining <laughs> you know um i'll go there you know i mean i i I uh, I love Christopher Hitchens. Do you read Christopher Hitchens? Have you read Hitchens? Uh, a little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah. I I loved reading Christopher Hitchens, and I mean I'm a Catholic. I I my children go to Sunday school, and yet I read his takedown of Mother Teresa. I <laughs> you know what you call the missionary position, which I think is just the best, you know. And it I, that doesn't bother me, you know. And I I understand that it bothers a lot of people. I I understand that a lot of people get 
physically uncomfortable, if not furious, um, reading something that they don't agree with. And um, especially in today's climate, I do understand that. And, and I, and I have some empathy for it, but at the same time, I think that um, if you really want to create something good, you can't just be preaching to the choir. You know, you can't just be trying to talk to your people, what you would call your people. Um, you, you've, you've got to try to transcend that at least. And, and to, to, create anything of meaning, I think you have to be able to reach out, you know, open your arms wider. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, uh, I'm an atheist, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> most but, of my but, friends are. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, even when I was reading Dante, I was always thinking about, because I'm not a militant atheist, I don't care yeah. about that type of thing and being an anti-theist like yeah. some people are. I mean, right. I'm not that sort of guy and yeah. I don't care about bashing religious people's beliefs right. and things like that. But, um, but while I was reading it last time, uh, I was always thinking, okay, so I, I guess that uh, a true militant atheist would be somewhat bothered by the fact that he was talking about how people would be punished for eternity in hell in those horrible ways. Uh, but at the same time, I was thinking, but if someone was to think about that story uh, in that way, then I guess that it would be somewhat of a faulty way of approaching it in the sense that that's not about uh, God punishing those people. That's about how people would like for people that did mm -hmm. those sorts of things to be punished. You know, yeah. that, that yeah. kind of difference. Because the, and that's why even as an atheist and as a secular person, I read it and it makes, it still makes sense to me that a human being would imagine people that did those sorts of things to other people being punished and wanting them to be punished that way. Because, I mean, that's just... <laughs> That's just what people want when someone does something that they think is wrong, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, even you don't have to believe in either, uh, you know, a literal um, or even a quasi-literal uh interpreta interpretation of the Bible to understand that these are seminal stories <laughs> and are incredibly revealing of humanity and humanity's struggle and our, you know, and our march through history, you know, and the it, same is with mythology, Greek mythology. I mean, at the time it was written, these people believed in these gods. Mm -hmm. It, it wasn't a fiction for them. I mean, it was a fiction, but it was a fictionalized story of these gods, but it, it, it was very real to them and which um, is easy to lose track of now because we uh, we see them as as entertainment, you know, and um, and as sort of part of the fantasy genre. But you know, we are, I think, fundamentally, in in one way or another, we are 
we, we are religious people, whether we, you know, believe in an actual deity or not. I think that, um, that, that it manifests itself perhaps in different ways. Some people become very religious about their atheism, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, some people become religious about, um, politics, you know, and, uh, which, can also be problematic since politics fundamentally is supposed to be about compromise. But if you feel religiously about something, you're incapable of compromise because you believe, you know, fundamentally it is a belief. It's not about, um, it's not about governance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it doesn't even make know? sense to me. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. even make sense to me to think about, about religious people as some atheists think as stupid or limited or something yeah. like that because i mean just think about it there are a ton of things in your life that you need that are non-factual it's just yeah. you you deciding to believing in them or not like for example your morality right your, your politics uh, the kind of meaning you give to your life and i mean all of those, the, even things about the way you establish relationships with other right. people. I mean, for, for all that matters, you could decide to simply not believe uh, that emotions are real, that feelings are real, and you could just yeah. brush all the other people aside and say, I don't care about this, I don't want this in my life, because these are not factual things and I only care about what science says or something like that. But I mean, no one, no, uh, there, there's not a single functional human being out there, at least that I know about, that doesn't need those sorts of things in their lives. And... Uh, I mean, it it doesn't make sense. It's just no. th it's just things that either you decide to believe in them or you don't, and and that's it. There there's no way to prove that uh, there's one moral system that is objectively better than the other. There's probably no way to prove that there's a god out there. Probably em not. <laughs> em empirically, empirically speaking, yeah. there, there's probably no way to prove factually that your politics is better than the politics of another person. I mean, a, a ton of things that you have in your life and that are really at the basis of you pushing forward and continue living because otherwise what would you be doing just here collecting facts but but even to collect the facts you need some sort of motive of motivation right? so. yeah yeah no, i mean neither love nor art are factual right yeah how do you how you know of course i mean there are certain factual elements i guess in art you can say that person's brushstroke and that painting is amazing but you can have a flawless technique that falls utterly flat you know mm -hmm. And um, does not in, in any way move an individual. It might inspire a certain degree of awe because of the flawless technique, for instance. <laughs> but you know, how do you how do you qualify um, when something moves you? You know, how do you factualize that? Um, 
how do you factualize a gut feeling? You know, which I think is, is an incredibly important element of science, right? I think every scientist starts out with a gut feeling about something. Mm-hmm. And that gut feeling is either proven right or wrong. But, um, but nevertheless, it's, it's there. Um, and then you see, you know, you see where that the data takes you, which actually I, I kind of view, uh, you know, art and, and literature in the same way as a writer. To some extent, you start off with a gut feeling and then you see where that gut feeling takes you. And through trial and error, you, you come up with, with a story and, um, and, you, and you bring that story to a conclusion, you know, that, uh, that obviously you have a lot more control over than, than maybe a scientist <laughs> does because you're not looking for an absolute truth necessarily when you're writing a story. You're looking for some variation of the truth. You're looking um, for uh, a way of satisfying emotions as well, which I think is, you know, uh, can be can be a little precarious sometimes, but, um, but yes, I, I so agree. I think that, uh, that we, um, we have, well, we've gotten to a place and I think that it is definitely infected art and literature where, uh, we are maybe (laughs) not, not looking at it in the spirit in which it was meant to be looked at, you know, that, uh, we take, art literally instead of using it as a plaything, as an intellectual plaything, something where we can, you know, play with ideas and, um, and uh, safely look at things from an alternative point of view. I mean, I'm always amazed when, I, um, when people talk about Nabokov's Lolita, that there is a very large group of people out there who are not willing to even consider it and are angry that it is considered a masterpiece because of its subject matter. Yeah, because uh, it in, in some because way it's about it a pedophile. invokes pedophilia. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think most of the people who, who are so angry about the book probably haven't read it. That's at least what I suspect. Maybe that's not true, but I do suspect it. But um, what, what I found so incredibly compelling about Lolita um, was was the fact that he was in Humbert Humbert he he was really showing us what someone like this looks like mm-hmm. and warts and all you know I I don't think that he was particularly kind to that character <laughs> um, but he was able to to show it to a certain extent from his point of view you know and 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 I think that's what again was was probably so. Um, dangerous what feels so dangerous to people you cannot possibly because by showing that you know I think the argument goes that simply by showing that you are somehow um, giving it a gold star you know that you're giving it a stamp of approval and it's like well no no you're not no you're not you know otherwise what could we show we could show nothing you know, yeah, I, I guess that goes back to, I, I'm not sure if we talked about this during the interview or before the interview, because we've, we've been talking for a long time here. But uh, at a certain point, we were talking about uh, how 
I, I mean, people deal badly with the fact that certain people have certain thoughts. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's basically what we're talking about right. here, that there are pedophiles out there and how they feel and think about children in that case. And, and I mean... The, it's very threatening, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, I mean, at the end of the day, does it really matter if there are people out there that think those kinds of thoughts? I mean, the, isn't it the case that what really matters is if they do something yes. about them or not? Because, I mean, are we really going to punish people or to oppress people socially in some way just because they might be having some sort of thought, even though they don't put anything into practice. Of course, in the book, uh, that's not... He does put it in practice. He, he does put it, <laughs> yeah, but, but oh, okay, okay. But, but anyway, we are, we are talking about a book. We are not talking about an actual, Reality, exactly. an actual real pedophile, right? So the book itself is just an exercise in it, we can even call it a thought experiment let's say absolutely it is a thought experiment and thought experiments i think are crucial to um for one thing a functioning society mm -hmm. i think that when you have um dysfunction in a society it it where you can see it bubbling up is is where these thought experiments are being squelched mm -hmm. um that can happen en masse if you're living in a, a truly tyrannical society, you know, an autocratic society perhaps, or a theocratic society. Um, or, and, it, and it also happens in functioning democracies, you know, where, where you know, you may have certain um, factions that rise and try to silence other factions and, and uh, you know, don't wanna hear a certain point of view, but you know, it tends to be more fluid, at least in, in functioning democracies, and I think healthier in the end, because we're at least able to have those conversations on some level, um, even if there is a certain level of, of, of danger involved to those conversations. Um, but I think that those thought experiments, I mean, that is, that is the whole point of art. That is the whole point of literature. It's the whole point of fantasy. You know, and, and again, I mean, it's why I, I, I became interested in, in writing about lovers because, I mean, one of the things that I find interesting is sexual fantasy and the relationship that it has to the way we really behave, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I was talking to a, a, a teenage boy, it was a couple of years ago, and, and, and um, we were talking about the, the way, you know, porn has been mainstreamed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he was expressing some sort of confusion and, and kind of mild disgust about it, you know, because it was probably about a 13-year-old kid. And I said, well, you, the way you've got to look at it is <laughs> porn is a little bit like that, that, um, that spy story where the spy breaks through the glass and jumps out of an eight-story window falls, rolls, stands up, brushes the broken glass off of his Armani suit and keeps walking. I was like, that's the relationship to reality that pornography has. <laughs> Most people don't conduct their lives that way. But clearly it is, you know, 
we have since the dawn of time been in some manner um, using it as a thought experiment for our own sexuality, you know, because everyone at one point or another has had some sort of, say, disturbing sexual fantasy, uh, uh, has had a fantasy that they in reality would not want playing out in their lives, mm -hmm. right? right. Um, either they would not want to be treated that way or they wouldn't want to behave that way themselves. Um, some people take it even further and do role play, right, in their own lives. But again, that's not real because they have all sorts of strictures that they've developed, right, where they they might have a certain phrase that they say that that ends the whatever scenario that they're um, that they're acting out. You know, I think that these are incredibly important these these thought experiments as you call them i love that phrase i'm going to use it from now on but i will always attribute it to you um, <laughs> but i mean how how absolutely vital are these thought experiments they are vital we've got to be able to think about them um first of all for the ones that are truly dangerous for instance like pedophilia you've got to be able to think about them to be able to discount them You've got to go beyond the fantasy of, um, you know, if you are one of those people who is inclined towards, you know, really young people and are attracted to really young people. Well, let's see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, let's see what that is besides the initial, you know, whatever it is that, bring these, that, that, that brings you to this um, person who you should certainly not be uh, getting involved with. Um, how does that look at the end? Where does that bring you? Usually to no place good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Without that thought experiment, how do you even get there? How do you even get to that bad place? How do you even, if, if, you, can't, if you can't think about it, if you can't go there, if you are not allowed to think that there is a God or there is no God, how do you even understand what the world looks like mm -hmm. um, with, you know, with that point of view, for instance, you know, how do you understand um, how it is that you're going to uh, live your life if, if you don't take yourself through um, dangerous scenarios in your own mind? You know, it, it, I, I, I don't even know what that's like. I mean, certainly, I mean, I told you how I had a child uh, born very ill. Mm -hmm. I, I had to think when she was sick, I believed that she was going to survive and she did. I mean, I believed it in my heart, in my gut. I really believed that she was going to survive. But I absolutely took myself to the place where she didn't and what that was going to look like. And I was really afraid to go there um, because it was very painful to go there. And I tried to, you know, but just the very process of taking myself through that and looking at what life would look like on the other side actually made it bearable mm -hmm. and helped me see that that would survive, you know, that, that there, there was another side to that and that um, it may not be what you want, you know, it may not be 
uh, you know, the, obviously the outcome that you hope for, but it's really important to go through and allow yourself to go there. You know, those things come up in our lives. They're not necessarily uh, um, always dangerous and criminal um, the way they are in Lolita, for instance. But, you know, these things do come up in our lives where we're faced with either a difficult situation and we are given a choice as to how to approach that situation. And, you know, how do you know, how do you know which route to take if you're not willing to imagine both routes? Right. Yeah. You know? Have you ever read books by a Portuguese guy called Fernando Pessoa? No. But I'm writing that down. I just asked you yeah. because there are a lot of uh, foreign people that know Pessoa. Yeah, know? No, and, yeah. And, I, and, I, I feel like I've heard the name, but I, I, I'm terribly forgetful. Yeah, and I, I just brought him up because uh, he had a very interesting way of thinking about social conventions. And I'm bringing this up because we're talking about fiction and fantasy mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> and things like that. And he thought about social conventions as fictions. Yeah. And that, that's very interesting because if you look at, if you go to the bottom of it, that's in fact what they are, right? For example, uh, our nations <laughs> are mm -hmm. simply things that we come up with. I mean, right. you, you can't find anywhere in the planet a frontier that uh, hasn't been uh, artificially created by human right. beings. That doesn't exist. The, uh, I mean, the, the reason why we can use money and it works is because we attribute value to money mm -hmm. and we and we trust that that piece of paper or that coin if we bring them to another person then we will be able to trade it let's say for other goods um, and i mean our moral systems our systems of law our political systems all of those things if we really think about it I mean, I've been talking on the show with people that do work on col cultural evolution. Right. But I, I mean, if you look back, uh, things evolve and it, it is kind of a, um, an overstretched thought experiment that people have been doing through a, a vast, extenses of time i mean thousands and yeah. hundreds of thousands and millions of years in some cases maybe so i i, I mean uh, what I, I guess that what i'm trying to arrive at with this is that maybe people shouldn't be that quick in terms of separating what they call reality Mm -hmm. from fiction because yeah. many of the things that they take as real are uh, in some sense even though they have maybe more impact or more direct impact in their lives are as derived from fiction as fiction itself i guess well yeah it it, it is it's kind of like the uh the artist escher 
you know, do you know Escher? You know, he, the hand, drawing the hand, he has this, and, and all of those. But that, you know, as a kid, I just loved his work. I had it all over my room, you know, <laughs> and um, which I guess was a clue as to, to uh, what I was going to end up doing for a living. But, um, but that's exactly it. I mean, fiction is a reflection of reality, which is a reflection of fiction, which is a reflection. You know, it, this this goes on, and it's it's incredibly circular. And um, that is part of what helps us figure things out. It's part of what has helped us arrive to these very systems that you're talking about. A system of money, for instance, of having a piece of paper. And I hand you this piece of paper, and it actually means something. Mm -hmm. But if I hand you a different piece of paper, it means nothing. Right. You know? Um, if the, the fact that we uh, sign a piece of paper or have another person officiate a ceremony which binds us legally and... Uh, emotionally to another person and makes that stranger a member of our family who is more immediate than our own mother mm -hmm. suddenly legally yeah right because uh, we don't have to get we don't have to legally separate from our parents after we're 18 right we can just decide that we want to be around them or not <laughs> you know i mean and these are things we've all arrived at over a really long stretch of time through these thought experiments and they're incredibly crucial to deciding you know what what is important to us you know what strictures we need to keep in place and which ones we need to be more flexible on and uh, you know without I, I just uh, you know without Without that constant play, whenever we, I think, find ourselves in a in a point in time where um, where that play feels uh, perhaps very threatening, and maybe that's always. I mean, maybe there, maybe we are always struggling with this. Maybe it just feels incredibly immediate right now because um, you know we now have social media, so we are actively having a fight every single day, you know, and all of this might have just been bubbling under the surface before and we just didn't see it right in front of us every day. But, um, but you know, the, that, that way of, um, of imagining and placing ourselves in sometimes these very extraordinary circumstances of taking, you know, of, of, of taking our schleppy selves, that, that person who just shows up at the subway every day like we do with his book or her book and sits down and waits for their call to be stopped, you know, um, you know, what is that person's journey? And that person has multiple journeys every day. And we actually do have those possibilities in reality in our lives, these hidden possibilities and these 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 hidden choices that we often, I think, don't don't even realize because they seem like non-choices. Well, of course, I wasn't going to talk to that girl. I had a meeting. <laughs> I couldn't talk to her. I didn't have time. Or, of course, I wouldn't talk to that girl. <laughs> I'm like five foot three, and she was like five eleven, and you know, or whatever, whatever it was, you know, and and um, and 
you know, taking taking ourselves through that call to adventure um, in in that sort of thought experiment in that in that sort of fictionalized world, I, I think helps better prepare us for when um, when we do actually find ourselves in a situation where we um, maybe unwillingly are forced into a call to action because that also happens you know it happens in small ways it happens in small ways say at 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 work if we need to stand by an idea that we had you know that maybe is unpopular but we feel very strongly about um the company taking that direction say or or um we may find ourselves in that situation in our own family life and dealing with God, any number of things from illness to infidelity to um, our own conflict with our choices in life as we find ourselves maybe not where we wanted to be or we find ourselves exactly where we want it to be and it wasn't that great. It's not as great as we thought and now we want to change it or whatever it is, you know. Um, how do we even have, you know, it's things like mythology and, and um, morality plays even and, and religious structures and social structures and clubs and all of these things work together to help us navigate these very complicated landscapes that we find ourselves in, even the most sort of simple and and maybe shy and and passive of us, you know, who who are just trying to get through the day and not make any waves and look, I just want to get there and then I want my pension, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. And I, I'm not I'm not gonna make problems with my spouse. They don't like this, so I'm not even gonna mention it, you know. Even those, even the people who are the most uh, passive of us and the most um, conflict averse, I think desperately need that those avenues and um, you know and I think that when we are denied them or we deny them to ourselves or you know we deny ourselves those avenues we act out mm -hmm. now I, I see that I, I feel like I see that on social media all the time and I wonder if if the people who are um, so angry you know and are always looking for people to have a beef with and, and to be upset about. I, I wonder if that anger has not replaced their fantasy life. Yeah, let me just tell you that the first time you talked about the call for adventure, mm -hmm. uh, I, I went through... <laughs> I, I I was in pure agony since then because I couldn't remember the name of the author, but it's Joseph Campbell. Campbell, so, yes, yes, Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. but I, I I didn't say anything, but I was here internally in pure agony because I, couldn't <laughs> I, really... like, I can't remember that author's name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, oh, but by the way, I'm also started, uh, starting to get a bit worried about your time because we're already <laughs> talking for three hours here, so. Uh, I'm a sucker for a good conversation. I, I, you know, once you get me talking, I never shut up. I think a lot of it is also, you know, writers are very solitary people. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. I work 
from home. <laughs> so it's it's dangerous getting me in a conversation because I don't I don't know when to stop. <laughs> okay, so uh, look, just before we go, could you tell us a little bit more about the book you're working on at the moment? I don't know if you already have a oh. Yeah. A, a title to it or not? Oh, yeah. I, um, I have a series that I, I call the series the Breath series because the first big book in the series is called Breath. And um, I'm having actually a, a teaser novel is coming out in about four weeks called Savage Island. And um, the premise of the series, it is about these two lovers from a very who were originally born to a very ancient pre-sumerian civilization but um in their first lives became these uh recurrent souls you know where they're born over and over again and so i guess in a sense it's a story of reincarnation they're not they're not they're not um not in the sense that everybody is reincarnated. It's really just sort of these these people, these souls who are uh, as rare as angels and demons. And they must find each other in each of their lives, but they also have a quest, um, this mystery, this quest that they must solve throughout their lives and throughout history. And they enlist the help of, you know, people in each life who are not recurrent souls and trying to solve this mystery that um, is a threat to all of humanity. So that is the scope of the series. And the first one, uh, you know, the, the sort of teaser novel, Savage Island, which takes place um, in the South Pacific in 1944, is coming out. And then the first big book will be out some months later, and that is the story of their first lives in this um, ancient civilization and how they actually became ninti, which is what I call these recurrent souls, they're ninti. So it's quite a departure from what I usually write because I write um, these very gritty uh, Cold War historical thrillers with a pretty serious noir bent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so this is this is this is a departure, even though um, I think it's still very much in that sort of uh, realm of, like I said, I I find war riveting, mm -hmm. and um, I find I am really somebody who loves conflict in a story, and so um, that is a part of it. I mean, it, in um, this ancient civilization that I'm writing about, which was ultimately destroyed which is why none of us know about it. Uh, there's, there's also some of the uh, more human, the, the characters, well, they're all human, but who are not recurrent souls are archeologists who are uncovering this ancient civilization in the series and learning about it. And um, this ancient civilization essentially uh, was destroyed in part by a plague and also in part by uh, poor governance and in a complete breakdown of the civil structure. And, um, you know, I read a lot about the rape of Nanking, for instance, mm -hmm. um, and these really massive breaks from civility and how, you know, how they played out. And I applied that to an entire civilization mm -hmm. um, in this first civilization that was, that, uh, was destroyed and produced 
these two souls, these two lovers. So um, it's been a really interesting journey because I've done, I've, I've gotten to research so many, so many interesting things, um, you know, like the rape of Nanking, and I've researched biological warfare and evolutionary psychology and, um, and having to create characters. And this is that this is really hard. And I have no idea if I've done it successfully, you don't know until people start reading it, but having to create characters that travel through time and become different people, and yet have core character character elements that you can relate to and that are consistent, you know, because you want to be, you know, as a reader, you want to be reacting to the same people, and yet they're not the same, you know. Sometimes they are these pre-Sumerian people. Other times they're British. And um, working in the golden age of archaeology around 1900 in, in Cairo, and other times they are the children of Spanish conquistadors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's so, it's, it's, this is a huge journey, but uh, it's fun. It's really fun. And I'm still going to be writing the Cold War thrillers. But anyway, that's that. Okay. And do you know when the first book of the series will be out? Yeah, it's coming out in a month. Uh, The teaser novel is coming out in a month. And then the, the big book in the series, the teaser novel is, you know, standard novel length. And then the first book in the series is, is more like 500 page <laughs> book, you know, it's like a big book. And um, that will be coming out next year. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So I will be expecting that, I guess, right. because now you teased me, so, and it seems a very interesting story. So, uh, oh, by the way, don't end the call. Let me just no. end the interview because I have one very interesting thing to tell you okay. uh, before, before we go. Uh, so right. uh, anyway, Victoria, thank you a lot for taking the time to come this on the show. And, and it was, I, I mean, I really loved the conversation. So. Me too. This has been so fun. Anytime. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you also have the alternatives of Subscribestar and PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Santel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Gondriano, Jane Eninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Giddy, Doctors Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.